Chapter 6 Making and Using the Grain With the introduction of agriculture, mankind entered upon a long period of meanness, misery, and madness, from which they are only now being freed by the beneficent operation of the machine. Bertrand Russell Modern Farming and Society There are few people who have stronger feelings about farming than farmers themselves, whose hearts quicken at the scent of fresh-tilled soil and whose sleep is constantly disrupted by thoughts of threats against their growing plants. But recently in society, farming has attained a new romanticism. Food that has been produced with archaic practices and hard labor seems somehow more nutritious, or perhaps just more righteous, to wealthy urban consumers than food that has been produced with the full benefit of modern technology. This is a vast departure from the majority of human historical experience. Almost every generation of farmers before this one has toiled not only in hard physical labor, but also generally in an imposed poverty due to that political convenience of cheap food for the masses, and even in ignominy. As the daughter in the 1983 movie National Lampoon's Vacation says to her country bumpkin cousin, Ah, uh, don't take this personally, Vicky, but being a farmer isn't too cool, you know. Anyway, I think it's a little unfair that some consumers would seem to prefer that their nation's farmers remain bound to small-scale poverty, physical toil, and outdated practices, rather than to take a little time and become educated about the processes of modern agriculture. Yet agriculture has probably had more of an influence on society than society has had on it. It's possible that the very reason humans formed stationary communities and city-states was in order to practice fixed-field agriculture. In 2011, researchers at Harvard and UCLA examined ethnographic data from over 1,200 civilizations around the world dividing them into the groups whose traditional farming practices involved the use of the hoe, a small instrument that can be adequately deployed by both men and women, or groups whose agriculture developed use of the plow, a heavy instrument that requires great upper-body strength to operate. If a civilization's ancestors relied on plow-based agriculture to grow wheat, barley, and similar cereal grains in their climates, so that's basically all of Western civilization, rather than on androgynous hoe-based agriculture, that would be potatoes or rice. The theory goes, then that plow-based civilization's ancestors experienced generation after generation of men working outside the home and taking the largest economic role in the family the role of farmer. Statistically, the researchers were able to show that those same plow-based civilizations, even now, are less likely to have women working outside the home, less likely to have women elected to government, and less likely to have women running businesses. Descendants of plow users are more likely to believe men deserve the first shot at jobs when unemployment is high. 
Apparently, today's beliefs about a woman's place in society and gender inequality in general can largely be explained by the ancient advantage men had to operate plows with relatively greater upper body strength. So each time we subconsciously believe a male candidate is inherently more capable of serving in political office than a female candidate. Or each time we imply mothers have intrinsically more household responsibilities than fathers, we are dancing in the puppet strings of thousands of years of societal evolution, hearkening back to the days when our species was no better than its ability to perform a physical task, like oxen. Agriculture seems poised to continue to shape our society. For instance. Long before we have any widespread deployment of self-driving cars, thousands of American farmers are using nearly autonomous tractors to plant their crops with the most advanced GPS technology available to the public. Rather than wrangling beasts of burden and a single-blade plow through soil, today's farmers use a tractor with more than 400 horsepower in its engine. Rather than sowing individual seeds he jealously guarded through the winter, today's farmer uses an in-cab computer and dual-array satellite receivers to guide a 24-row planter in patterns that are precise to within an inch. Rather than hoeing or pulling weeds by hand, today's farmer again uses a precise GPS system to efficiently apply herbicides where they're needed and only where they're needed. The same system can apply just the right amount of fertilizers and nutrients, wasting nothing. Rather than picking, cutting, or threshing mature grain with his own hands and back, today's farmer again engages the finest machinery technology available. At the end of a growing season, he has every data point he could possibly need, including seed population, seed depth, input rates, final yield, final moisture, and more, to fine-tune his production practices on each GPS-mapped square foot of his farm. His data may even be more precise than that. He may have used aerial imagery from an unmanned aerial system. UAS or drone to map each field and each growing plant down to two-inch square detail several times through a growing season. The farmer's grain storage too is more evolved today than a stack of bushel baskets in the barn. It can track the temperature, moisture, and overall condition of the grain within its storage bin. These developments have radically altered the physical labor aspect of farming. Don't get me wrong; anyone who's grown up on a farm will wax poetic about the virtues of hard work and character building, but there is no virtue in hanging on to physical tasks which hinder efficiency or limit the labor pool. It will always take a certain amount of strength to tighten bolts or hook up hydraulic linkages on farming equipment, but that level of strength isn't restrictive. We've entered the age when upper body strength is no longer a prerequisite to be a successful farmer. It's even possible for a paraplegic, once he's entered a tractor cab, to operate that tractor and farm as capably as any able-bodied person. And yes, this has been done. 
who knows for how many generations or for how many hundreds of years we may still carry the attitudes of our earliest farming ancestors. But today, the ways farming practices affect our society are no longer regressive. In fact, agriculture is advancing our species to the very forefront of technology. Joe Smith had felt a pain in his gut for days. At first, he thought it was just gas. But even that didn't make sense because his diet during harvest was actually simpler and more regular than usual. Each day, he would pack a little cooler with a turkey sandwich, carrot sticks, a Snickers bar, and several bottles of water and Mountain Dew. One must stay well hydrated and well caffeinated while sitting in a combine all day, every day, alternating one's stare between the hypnotic flow of corn ears into the machine and the rhythmic digital cartoon of the GPS map and yield monitor inside the cab. Then one afternoon, Joe got out of the combine to clear a branch out of the header. He bumped his belly button against a sharp metal point, and wow! The pain in his gut became so acute he knew something was truly wrong. Irritated to take the time out of his day, he reluctantly drove himself into the doctor's office and was told he had a hernia. He would need an operation. Which was great, just great. He only had three fields left to harvest, and here the doc was telling him he'd be stuck in the hospital for a day and laid up for a week afterward. Listen, all I do is sit in the combine all day. It's no different than sitting in a chair all day. Can't I still do that after the operation? The doctor was adamant. No, no, you can't be bouncing around in a tractor afterward. Not for many days. Joe wanted to roll his eyes. It wasn't like he'd be rolling over a boulder field on an old farmall H with a metal seat. He'd be on a padded seat in a combine with hydraulic suspension rolling over smooth river-bottom ground. Honestly. But between the doctor and Joe's wife, there was no way around the farming moratorium. So now Joe was sitting in his grain truck watching other people harvest his corn. If he could drive himself to the hospital with a hernia, he figured he could at least drive his own corn to the elevator after a hernia repair operation. Fortunately, his parents hadn't yet left for their winter home in Arizona, so Joe could put his dad in charge of his Case IH combine, albeit with severe qualms. Joe himself struggled sometimes to make the GPS receiver and computerized yield monitor work properly, but to explain the system to a stubborn 72-year-old man who refused to even use email was frustrating to say the least. His neighbors had also heard about his trip to the hospital, so they were finishing up his other two fields. It wasn't a big deal. The medical problem wasn't life-threatening, and harvest had been early that year, so there was plenty of time and good weather left to finish up. But on the other hand, emotionally, it was a very big deal to know that a guy's neighbors were willing to do that to take the time out of their own harvests and use their own equipment on his behalf. Joe would have liked to throw them each a big barbecue and keg party to thank them, but in the one instance, old Leonard Stern wasn't a drinker, and in the other instance, 
it probably wouldn't look good for Joe to be liquoring up young Mrs. Kearney while her husband was away in Afghanistan. Stern was harvesting the bottom ground north of Joe's machine shop, so Joe would be nearby if he had any questions. The older farmer had planted every acre of his own farm every year since he was 14 years old, and he was now 83. If there was something to know about farming in Grundy County, Iowa, Leonard Stern was the one who knew it. He could recall 69 years of weather patterns and the ownership history of every quarter of land in several townships. He was as faithful about buying and using only John Deere farming equipment now as he had been in 1943. But even though John Deere offers GPS systems in its equipment, Stern had planted all those acres over all those years successfully by his own dead reckoning, and he didn't feel the need to learn some new trick now. Last spring, Joe had taken an entire afternoon and evening out of a very tight planting schedule to help Stern get his tractor unstuck from axle-deep mud, and the Sterns and the Smiths had been lending each other pieces of equipment and blocks of time back and forth over many, many decades, so there was already an established pattern of favor-giving when Stern offered to harvest Joe's field. Joe also had some good deeds built up with Lindsay Kearney. She had always been the technology and marketing whiz on the Kearney farm for the seven years she and Brett had been married. But Joe had helped her with some welding and disc sharpening while Brett was deployed. Joe's wife sometimes babysat for the Kearney's kids. Mrs. Kearney was running a New Holland combine with the latest aftermarket Ag Leader GPS system. Therefore, when she had called offering to help out for a day, Joe asked her to harvest the 80 Williams acres he had just started renting that year. He was very curious about the quirks of that field. How would the low spots perform? Should he apply some more nutrients on the hilltops next year? He would be able to match up the digital yield data from Lindsay's combine against the data he'd collected from his planter last spring and identify trouble spots within the field. He was paging through Ag Leader's website on his smartphone when the CB in his grain truck crackled to life and his dad's voice poured into the cab. Hey, Joe! Yeah? I've been telling you for years, you gotta do some deep tillage on this south end of the field here. And didn't I tile this exact spot about 20 years ago? This is terrible. You should, you should come look at this. You got a, what, what hybrid did you use down here anyway? What does the yield monitor say? That's what I'm saying. It says 15. You're never gonna pay off all this fancy computer shit if you can't raise better corn than this, Joe. Joe scratched his head. Fifteen bushels per acre? Something must be funny with the yield monitor. Well, what does the corn look like? You got the header set right? Ha! Ha what? Looks great, actually. Looks just like the 175 stuff up on the top of the hill. Joe rolled his eyes and went back to his smartphone without responding. There was a certain rhythm required to successfully divide one's attention between the computer screen and the corn itself, but Joe had expected his father would just ignore the former entirely and only watch the latter. Oh well, 
losing half a field's worth of yield data was going to be easier to deal with than fixing whatever was wrong, or probably wasn't wrong, with his combine while his dad was operating it. Joe, this is really weird. How come if the corn looks so good, your goofy screen here is telling me 15? It's probably the moisture reading. Oh. Silence for a few beats. Ha! Huh. 180 yield, 15% moisture. Ha! Huh. Yep. Boy, was Joe going to be happy once this year's harvest was finally just done. The Farming Calendar I hope no one intends to use this chapter as a how-to guide for actually growing or processing grain. Nevertheless, for anyone who intends to trade grain, it can be useful to have an overview of what is happening in modern grain production and when. Then, if you hear a farmer from North Dakota worry about dry soil in February, you will know that complaint has less market influence than hearing, for instance, missed the rain that was forecast for Saturday night, and now my corn furrow is starting to open up, from an Iowa farmer in mid-May. Crop production considerations that may influence the markets can be organized into a rough calendar. January and February In these months, most of North America's farmland is in the middle of a season that doesn't support much plant growth. Many farmers take advantage of this time frame to perform maintenance and repairs on equipment, or tackle any other tasks that may get neglected during busier times, including taking vacations. From a grain market standpoint, as long as the road conditions are favorable for grain trucks, we frequently see a lot of grain being taken out of storage on the farm and brought into the market via local elevators. Some farmers may prefer to receive income right after the start of a new fiscal year. March Now starts the busy season for farmers. While no farmer wants to place seed in the ground before the threat of frost has passed, and while the weather in March may still be prohibitive for fieldwork in many regions, in the heart of the Corn Belt, March can be a month when a lot of field preparation occurs. Tillage of the soil, application of nutrients, etc. In southern states like Texas, as many as half the state's corn acres may be planted by the end of March. When the market prices rally during the spring time frame, it's often said that they're, quote, buying acres, which means farmers can be motivated to plant more of one crop than another if the upcoming autumn futures prices suggest there will be relatively greater opportunities for profit. However, it's unusual for a farmer to really switch his planting plans based on price alone. It's considered good farm management to rotate crops on any given field from one year to the next. A corn-on-corn -corn rotation would imply the farmer was planting corn on the same field where corn grew the previous year, and although the nutrition and disease pressures of having the same species in the same spot must be handled properly, it's an increasingly popular practice when corn production offers more exciting yields and if the corn market offers better profitability. Farmers may be inclined to stick to a crop rotation plan. A 50-50 corn and soybeans rotation is common throughout the Corn Belt. 
and then to buy the necessary inputs for that plan, somewhat regardless of what prices the markets offer in the spring. April. Farmers who plant faster maturing small grains, like spring wheat, plant those crops first before planting row crops like corn and soybeans. So in April, you will see the planting progress start first and move fastest for those small grain crops. But corn won't be far behind. By the end of April, Illinois and Iowa will tend to have about 45% of their intended corn acres already planted, and some of the seeds will have emerged above ground and started their lives as little green plants. Weather across the Corn Belt, therefore, is a major market factor in April and subsequent months. A killing frost can damage production prospects, as can excessive precipitation, which can prevent farmers from accessing their fields and planting a crop. Weather that is too dry, on the other hand, may not bode well for the emergence of the seed and its ultimate production capabilities. But farmers, being the eternal optimists they are, will readily plant seed into dry ground. There is a saying in Kansas, plant in the dust and bins will bust. May. Because of the threat of frost, the planting pace throughout the spring will naturally be more advanced in the southern portions of the Corn Belt than in the northern parts. North Dakota, for instance, doesn't usually hit the halfway point for planting its corn acres until mid-May. But these days, soil temperature and weather are about the only things that can slow down planting. Given the prevalence of large, efficient farming equipment, it's estimated that all the corn acres anywhere in the country could theoretically be planted within a seven-day period. In other words, the physical task of getting the seed into the ground isn't the bottleneck it used to be a generation ago, when it took farmers a month of working to get a crop seeded into the ground. Spring is a time frame when the market closely watches if the planting pace is getting the seed into the ground earlier or later than usual. When a corn seed is inserted into the soil, it contains within its thin shell 100% of its production potential. From that point forward, its yield prospects can only be decreased by non-ideal conditions. So normal or early planting can't increase a crop's yield prospects, but it can remove one of the sources of production risk, and therefore remove some risk premium from futures prices. On the other hand, late planting of a crop means that it could reach critical stages of its lifespan, pollination and grain fill, during non-ideal weather conditions, like the heat of late July or early August. In the heart of the corn belt, for each day after May 15th that a cornfield gets planted, it's estimated that the final yield will be reduced by more than a bushel per acre. To be more precise, the yield reduction is best expressed as a percentage of the formerly expected yield. Let's say each day of planting delay takes off 1.2% of what would ordinarily be 150 bushel per acre corn. That would be equivalent to 1.8 bushels per acre lost per day. 
Soybeans require a shorter time frame to mature and will reach their critical production stages later than corn, so they are typically planted after corn throughout the Corn Belt. By mid-May, the Iowa-Illinois-Indiana center of the Corn Belt will typically have about a third of its soybean acres planted. Because they are relatively more tolerant of late planting, whenever weather does prevent some farmers from getting their corn planted on schedule, those farmers may switch some of their planting intentions from corn to soybeans, which is then bullish to corn prices because of fewer acres and simultaneously bearish to soybean prices because of relatively larger plantings. But other than that, planting progress should theoretically be a less important market consideration than the overall number of acres being planted and the longer-term weather projections for the summer ahead. June Farmers in the U.S. usually have all their soybean planting finished up within the first few weeks of June because, again, the physical task of planting is rarely the bottleneck, unless spring rain prevents planting from getting done quite as quickly as farmers would like. Once all their crops are planted and growing, however, other tasks lie ahead. Farmers apply fertilizers and or herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides to their growing crops. If they're not busy doing all that, grain farmers who also raise livestock are probably busy putting up hay. Except for needing to access their fields for those reasons, they would otherwise be happy to have June be one long, rainforest-like stretch of steady precipitation and relatively hot weather. Plant growth is fostered by good nutrition, adequate moisture, and the accumulation of growing degree days. That's a unit system to measure the cumulative heat needed to grow a crop. As the crops bask in an ideal environment, or suffer in a non-ideal one, June is a time frame when the crop's condition will start to be directly observable. A windshield tour of a region can be done simply by driving through the countryside and taking notes about whether or not the young plants seem to be thriving. Did they all emerge evenly? Do they seem choked by weeds? Do they seem to not have enough soil moisture? Do they seem yellow and anemic for lack of certain nutrients? Do they seem smaller and later developing than they should be for this time of year? Unfortunately, a windshield tour alone can't give a full picture of what may be happening within the middle of some fields, like drowned-out acres, for instance. So some observers may use aerial images, including infrared images taken from drones or airplanes or even satellites, to get a fuller analysis of crop condition during the summer growing months. July While the row crops were just getting started, the winter wheat crop was maturing and starting to be harvested. By the beginning of July, most southern states with winter wheat acres like Texas, California, and Arkansas, will tend to have most of those acres harvested already. In Kansas, where about 15% of the nation's wheat is grown, more than in any other state, July is the hottest month of winter wheat harvest. This is the time of the infamous gut slot of harvest, when the entire crop must find space somewhere, in a farmer's bins, or in a local elevator, 
or in a large covered ground pile, before it can be loaded out on trains and sent off to end users. Obviously, this can have an effect on the wheat markets, as owners who don't have enough space to store the grain become very eager to sell it to someone who does. Also, anecdotal reports from the fields give the market an idea of how much grain is being harvested. A normal amount? A smaller than expected bullish amount? Or a larger than expected bearish amount? The timing of winter wheat harvest also makes it possible, in some areas, to grow two crops on the same field within one year, a practice called double cropping. In southern states, where winter wheat could be harvested sometime in June, the farmer could turn around and plant soybeans directly where the wheat had just been harvested, with confidence that he has enough warm, frost-free days before those soybeans reach maturity in the fall. For soybeans that were planted at the more traditional time frame, July is the month when the plants will start blooming, if they are healthy. This pollination time frame, wherein soybean plants produce flowers and then start setting pods, is the soybean plant's most moisture-sensitive phase. However, the flowering stage stretches across two months and isn't much affected by heat. Flowers that are set early have precedence in setting pods on the plant, but later flowers can compensate for some losses, so therefore soybeans are relatively less weather-sensitive than corn during this time frame. It's still critical that the weather not be so dry that the pollen desiccates, and the plants must have access to enough moisture to support them as they fill the pods. Corn plants, on the other hand, are extremely sensitive to weather during the month of July. The corn plants will by now have reached their full height and started to produce silk, which is the equivalent of flowers. Pollen from the tassels at the tops of corn plants will fall down onto the silks and fertilize the cells that will grow into kernels of corn. Therefore, how well the corn plants fare during this time frame will directly determine how many kernels of corn will be produced on each ear out in the field. Obviously, corn pollination can't tolerate drought conditions, which cause the silks to desiccate. But the plants themselves are also sensitive to nights that are too hot and humid. They need to have a cooling-off period at the night times to respirate and generate the energy to produce grain. By the end of July, it becomes possible to go out into a cornfield and pull small, immature ears off the plants to see how well pollinated they are and how well the grain is filling. The weather during all these critical periods of grain production is closely watched by the market to determine the bullishness or bearishness of the crop's yield prospects. August In August, corn kernels will still be doughing, that is, filling with flesh, and starting from the southern states moving northward, corn will start to dent. That's the stage reached when the ears kernels have filled with their maximum amount of flesh. The corn is considered physiologically mature after this point, and all that's left for it to do is to dry down and get ready for harvest. 
It's therefore impossible for good weather to have an effect on improving corn's yield prospects from that point forward, but poor weather can still be a threat. Hail could still wipe out fields, or an early frost could shut down the plant or prevent the grain kernels from drying properly. If the plants run out of soil moisture or nitrogen and shut down before their natural maturation and dry down occurs, the leaves of the plant may start to roll and the plants themselves may start firing. You can identify firing when the plants dry up and turn brown from the bottom up rather than from the top tips of the leaves downward, and it's a sign that the ears wouldn't have been able to ideally fill their kernels. Some cornfields may get harvested while still green, before the actual kernels of corn are fully mature. The end product of such harvesting is called silage, and it's typically harvested as a feed for livestock, but it could also be used to produce biofuel. To produce silage, a farmer would harvest and chop up entire moist green plants, leaves, stalks, ears, and all then compress and store the roughage somewhere out of the elements, in a silo or tarped bunker, for instance, so the substance can ferment and preserve the nutrients in the feed. While corn is basically either made or not made by the time August rolls around, it's actually the most critical month for soybean production. Soybean plants across the nation are still setting pods during this time frame, which means they crucially need adequate moisture. Without it, observers may notice droopy leaves or aborted flowers in soybean fields. Then once the pods have fully developed beans inside them, the plants will naturally start dropping leaves. Even though it doesn't make the plants look particularly healthy, eventually there'll be nothing more than brown sticks and pods, leaf drop is actually the usual healthy pattern of development. Again, benchmark stages of soybean production will first be noticed in southern states and move northward. While the spring-planted row crops were pollinating and filling up kernels of grain, spring-planted wheat was also maturing, first tillering, that is, developing the segmented shoots which form off the main grass blade, then heading, then filling each kernel with flesh, and finally drying down into maturity. August is the hot month for spring wheat harvest in the northern plains, Minnesota, South Dakota, and North Dakota. So the Minneapolis futures market will be the one to respond to harvest reports in this time frame. September. Once a cornfield is mature, which most of them will tend to be by the end of September, Farmers still must wait until the grain is dry before they'll be willing to harvest it. If grain has more than 15% moisture content, it may be susceptible to deterioration or even rotting in storage, so buyers will dock farmers if they bring in grain that's too wet. However, it is possible to harvest grain that's a little wet, then put it through a grain dryer to evaporate the moisture out. This involves some delicate math. Grain that is too dry will weigh less and have the same volume as grain with 15% moisture, so it doesn't make much economic sense to pay for the natural gas or whatever energy source to run a grain dryer 
only to be paid for fewer pounds of grain. There is almost always a discount for wet grain, but rarely any premium paid for especially dry grain. In any case, unless they're harvesting a few fields for silage, most of the Corn Belt's farmers spend the month of September getting their equipment ready and waiting for harvest. In the last few weeks of September, farmers in the southern tips of Illinois and Indiana may start harvesting, and the majority of Texas and North Carolina's corn may already be harvested. Of course, the actual timing of harvest in any given year depends on that year's weather. Late spring planting can lead to a relatively late fall harvest, or the inverse. Or, a rainy fall can delay harvest and lead to quality losses in the overall crop. But whenever large quantities of corn start coming to market, it will affect the price. Futures traders will of course respond bearishly to reports of larger-than-expected harvest prospects, or bullishly to reports of smaller-than-expected harvest prospects. But an even clearer response to harvest pressure can be noted in the local basis levels whenever the harvest is hitting its gut slot. To the degree that southern states experience a relatively large or relatively early harvest which gets delivered against hedges in the September futures market, then the September contract may be traded like a new crop futures contract in some years or an old crop futures contract in other years. October. Once the September futures contract expires, all the corn harvested in October onward has to be delivered against hedges made in the December futures contract. So that is usually the first futures contract market we can confidently say is fully a new crop market. October is the big month for row crop harvest. This varies in some regions and some years, but Corn Belt farmers typically harvest soybeans before harvesting corn. Also, because it's inconvenient to switch equipment and storage facilities around mid-harvest, they usually harvest all their soybeans first before starting on corn, unless the corn is dry and critically needs to be taken out of the field before they're totally done with soybean harvest. In any case, a good portion of U.S. soybean acres may already be harvested before the start of October, but by mid-October, perhaps only a third of the Corn Belt's corn acres will have been harvested. As with planting, it's usually not the physical pace of harvesting that's the bottleneck for getting the grain out of the fields and onto the market. Weather permitting, farmers can harvest fields about as fast as they can plant them, although it does require more labor. There can be local bottlenecks if the elevator can't dump trucks very quickly, or if it fills up and can't create more space for grain. However, aside from affecting the local basis market, such considerations shouldn't figure into the actual bullishness or bearishness for the overall market's supply and demand. About the only way harvesting pace, separate from a harvest's yield results, should theoretically affect market prices, would be if the harvest was significantly delayed by wet or stormy weather that could affect the quality of the grain, limiting the supply of good grain available to end users that year. The other big activity in October is winter wheat planting. 
If a farmer intends to plant winter wheat after a crop of soybeans or small grains, it's entirely possible that the original crop would have been harvested by mid-September or early October, and the farmer could turn right around and put winter wheat seed into the same ground. In Kansas, for instance, three-quarters of their winter wheat acres could be planted before the middle of October, so even though you might not think the weather matters much on empty, harvested fields, in regions where winter wheat is grown, it's already important to receive timely precipitation from October onward so that the seeds can germinate and the plants can get a good start. November By the middle of November, all but the last few soybean fields around the country should be harvested, and the nation's corn harvest should be reaching its three-quarters mark, even in states like North Dakota and Michigan. Consider that the northern tiers of the Corn Belt not only had to wait a little longer to plant their crops to avoid spring frosts, but they also have more urgency to harvest their crops before heavy snows start to blanket the ground. Elsewhere, winter wheat plants should have all emerged before the end of November if they are going to emerge at all. December Once the harvest is done and the equipment and the grain is all tucked away, winter approaches and fall-seeded crops, like winter wheat, enter a period of dormancy. Farmers, however, aren't entirely dormant in December. This is a good time frame to plan ahead for next year, to evaluate which seed varieties or production techniques worked well that year and which didn't, to order next year's seed, to market grain, to perform repairs on existing equipment, or to make purchases of new equipment before the tax year comes to an end. Having fully digested all the fundamental data about the new supply of harvested grain, the futures markets may be more responsive to outside market forces during this time frame than to grain-specific considerations. There are basically no North American weather concerns to affect trade in December, but investment fund rebalancing, or investors' general opinions about the economy and geopolitical risk, can still create volatility in grain prices during this period. Also, don't ever forget that while all these annual production patterns are going on in the United States, similar or opposite production patterns are going on all over the world. Significant amounts of grain are also produced in Canada, Europe, Russia, the Ukraine, and China, all of which fall within the Northern Hemisphere and therefore produce grain on roughly the same schedule as America, although with different crop mixes and sometimes with different production practices. Meanwhile, about a third of the world's soybeans are produced in Brazil, and they usually export about 40% of their production. So things that affect production in the southern hemisphere, prices, input volatility, weather, etc., are very influential to global prices. Volatility in the world soybean market may have more of a six-month seasonal cadence because of the production in both hemispheres, rather than an annual pattern. The row crop growing regions in Brazil and Argentina stretch more than 1,000 miles north to south, 
So just as a corn farmer in Texas is likely to plant his crops sooner than a farmer in North Dakota, the seasonal production patterns in these South American countries have rather wide variations. But for a general idea, you can expect South American farmers to be planting their soybeans from October through December, watching their plants flower and fill with grain. Those are the stages that are particularly sensitive to weather. During late January, February, and March, then harvesting the soybeans in April and May, because the infrastructure of roads, railways, and grain storage facilities hasn't been developing for as many years as such systems in the U.S. have been around, it can take relatively longer for the harvested South American crops to get from the fields onto the world export market. Also, some Brazilian farmland with a long growing season can be double cropped within a year, so there can be two row crop harvest seasons in that region. Australia is another production region in the southern hemisphere that can move world markets. It plants wheat from May to July and harvests it from October through December. Other agricultural crops like coffee, sugar. Orange juice and palm oil have significant production areas in the southern hemisphere, but these have a less direct influence on grain trading. Condition reports. Back in the U.S., however, data about how quickly or how well crops like corn, soybeans, and wheat are progressing through their annual production schedule is closely watched by market participants. For farmers who see their own single small region of the corn belt, and a single small region only, throughout a growing season, there can be a tendency to concentrate only on what is happening in their backyards, or out of their truck windshields. If southeast Missouri is very dry one summer, for instance, farmers there may experience some consternation if the grain futures prices don't react to their drought. With higher prices, however, if the rest of the corn belt receives adequate moisture, even while Missouri's crops are burning up, the average yield and aggregate production throughout the U.S. can insulate the overall markets from any major effect. Although it would be a different matter for the local basis market, of course. The same is true for any grain market analyst who takes a windshield tour through any particular crop region. He can't possibly see the entire crop, or even enough of the crop, to make a fully accurate estimation of the entire nation's production. To counteract this backyarditis phenomenon, the USDA releases weekly crop progress reports. Government observers take note each Sunday evening how much of the crop has been planted in their area, or what growth stage the crop is in. Or what condition it is in. When these thousands of observations get aggregated together on the state and national levels, the market can start to understand whether the full production prospects for the upcoming year are bullish or bearish. It's not so important for the market to know how quickly farmers are completing certain tasks. Except in extreme circumstances, when a slow pace might lead to a loss of planted acreage or a loss of quality, 
but it is very critical to have estimates for how well crops will yield, which depends strongly on how well the crops fare throughout their growing season. Knowing that 81% of Iowa's corn has emerged by May 20th is therefore a less useful data point for traders than knowing that 16% of Iowa's corn was rated no better than in fair condition on July 15th. Crop progress surveyors make visual observations of the growing crop and give their own subjective evaluations about how well that crop is looking. They can respond with what proportions of the crop they consider to be very poor, poor, fair, good, or excellent. This means that there's not just one number to compare each week against the previous week's situation, but market analysts will sometimes use the sum of the good and the excellent proportions together as a benchmark from week to week, or they can index the ratings. Even though these surveys are subjective, the Crop Progress Report is a valuable tool for market analysts. The survey responses are reviewed for reasonableness and consistency. By comparing them against previous weeks or surrounding counties' responses, and in any case, approximately 4,000 surveys are compiled into the weekly national report, so there is statistical confidence in the average response. Some traders may want an edge, something better than the weekly crop progress report that every other trader on earth is also poring over. And it's possible to point out the weaknesses of the government's official report without even suggesting the USDA is negligent in any way. It's simply not always possible to determine a crop's production prospects with just a drive-by visual observation. Corn, for instance, can look very green and tall and healthy and yet experience yield losses if hot temperatures restrict the plant's pollination. Infrared aerial imagery, which is perhaps the best way to show the true national planted acreage, accounting for the drowned-out low spots within certain fields, can be great for showing the overall health of the nationwide crop but even this method could miss the effects of poor pollination. So traders and analysts who develop a broad network of observers throughout the Corn Belt can sometimes get a tip on some market concern, which may just be a localized production problem, or it may signal a fresh, serious problem the rest of the market hasn't fully incorporated into their production estimates yet. Weather it's clear why weather is so influential to grain market prices. If a crop is likely to have a poor yield, that's bullish because there will be relatively less supply over which end users can compete. If a crop is likely to have an ample yield, that's bearish because the supply of grain will flood the market and sellers will be relatively keen. So throughout a growing season, prices may include gradually less risk premium as time goes on. At the start, there is the full season's worth of weather stressors to get through, and a great deal of uncertainty about final yields. That uncertainty itself is somewhat bullish. The market is reluctant to sell before it's confident about production. On each subsequent day of the growing season, however, 
there are gradually fewer and fewer ways for weather to damage the crop, and therefore gradually more confidence about how much grain will really be produced. The timing of weather-related yield estimates not only affects speculators' opinions on the market, it also has a profound effect on the timing of farmers' pre-harvest grain marketing. That's the process of deciding how much grain to sell at which time, at which price level, and with which financial instrument. If a farmer always plants some corn and some soybeans every year, then he knows he'll have some of each to sell to the market every year. If he likes the price of the December corn futures contract posted three years out in the future, he could hedge some of his corn crop with those futures. He could not, however, hedge his entire projected corn crop too far in the future because he can't be entirely confident there won't be flooding or drought or some other natural disaster that limits how much grain he will produce in that year. This is true even for grain that is planted and growing in the field. Farmers tend to be hesitant to commit to forward-selling physical grain if they can't be confident it will even grow into existence. For instance, in March, a farmer may think he's going to plant enough acres to produce 100,000 bushels of corn. He might sell 50,000 bushels, or 50% of his intended production, to his local elevator. However, by the time July rolls around and his crop is withering and dying out in the field, those 50,000 bushels might represent 100% of what he now expects his production to be. No matter how the market price changes, that farmer can't commit to selling any more corn. In this kind of scenario, financial hedges, options contracts, or short futures positions— allow a farmer's grain marketing plan to be a lot more flexible. He can get out of a short futures position instantaneously by just calling his broker, but an elevator or end user may never let him out of a cash-forward contract. If he can't produce the grain one year, they may just ask him to bring in the next year's bushels to honor the contract. If he does have a crop failure and has to buy out of his cash contracts, the crop insurance payout may help him financially. In any case, that's one reason why the futures markets respond directly to weather. If farmers' fields have experienced adequate weather, they may be relatively willing to sell grain before harvest. Remember that even if they only sell cash contracts and never participate in the futures markets themselves— the grain buyers will be hedging their purchases with short futures positions, so no matter how a farmer chooses to sell grain, it will pretty much always result in some equivalent selling pressure in the futures market. On the other hand, if farmers' fields are suffering from poor weather conditions, that flow of farmer selling may dry up entirely, and end-users might become eager to hedge future purchases with long futures positions. Those considerations can be backward-looking and very much influenced by backyard-itis, and rightly so. Those are independent decisions being made about independent fields that have experienced real observed weather. Merchandisers will experience a strengthening or weakening of their local basis levels based on their local weather alone, 
with the secondary effects of a drought 500 miles away being less pronounced. But for speculators trading grain futures, the real trick is not only to see crop weather as a big nationwide picture, but also to anticipate upcoming weather rather than to react to observed weather. I'm not just talking about the seven-day weather forecasts you might watch on your local news channel, although those can be interesting too. Back in the days of floor traders in the Chicago pits, longtime market analyst Gary Wilhelmy described to me how he could directly see the futures prices react to rain in northern Illinois when Chicago traders watched Tom Skilling's daily weather report on WGN's Midday News. Now that worldwide electronic traders have taken over, I think the skilling effect may be less pronounced. The real weather forecasts which grain traders should be watching are long-term and very scientific in nature. Money is made in futures trading by intuiting or predicting a market movement before the rest of the market has already had a chance to incorporate that information into the price. An efficient market will always reflect all the known information about that market into its price, eventually, so traders who can access the information faster than others, or who can make more accurate predictions about the information than others, will have an advantage to buy the contracts sooner at cheaper prices or to sell the contracts sooner at higher prices. A fundamental grain trader who wants to identify a new trading opportunity or just be protective of positions he has in his portfolio should acquire detailed weather forecasts and maps. The National Weather Service provides free access to their short-range forecasts and climatic outlooks. That's 6 to 10 days, 8 to 14 days, 1 month out, and 3 months out. But for more detailed grain market-specific comments and for international weather commentary, traders may subscribe to any of a number of weather research services. Those should provide frequent updates with any changes to the forecast, as well as the context in which the weather will occur. Heavy snow in North Dakota in January, or a dry pattern in Australia in March, may not mean very much to the grain market prices when there are no developing crops in those places at those times. Traders will also discover a wealth of weather information and harvest information freely proffered on social media websites. If it's dry in Kansas and the wheat crop is suffering, no one will be more likely to make that news public than a Kansas wheat farmer. Farmers' backyarditis everywhere is especially pronounced when their local weather is seen as bullish to the grain markets. Of course, observers on the ground in grain-producing regions really do have the best view to determine how weather is affecting crop development, and the aggregation of their news can be very valuable to a trader. But you should also be a little wary about anyone who is talking their position.